Welcome to Pebbly Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Yeah, that's us. Hello, I'm Dr. Moy McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist, a folklorist, and a friend to the universe. Uh, uh-huh. That's me. <laughs> I stumbled on saying uh-huh, but I do mean uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Kukaputo, a writer, funny person, and friend to the universe. And we are joined by another person today. I am so excited to introduce you to Jamie Green, a freelance science writer and editor and teacher of those crafts. And she just published a book, The Possibility of Life, something we've talked about here, but I'm extra excited to talk about now. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for inviting us into your happy place. Yeah. Obviously, thanks for being on the episode. That goes without saying. Um, But we are also here in this beautiful spot that you recommended. Can you tell us about it? Where are we? Yes, we are on a beach in Costa Rica. I don't remember the name of this beach, but it is a real place. Mm -hmm. It has very soft sand and sort of it's a little bit of a cove. So the coastline sort of curves up around the edges like, you know, at the edge of the beach, far away from you, where you are. And there are beautiful like stone outcroppings there, but where we are it is just a, a beautiful, soft beach. The ocean is not too rough and we've got low little beach chairs so that when we sit, we can dig our toes into the sand. And we are absolutely drinking coconut water out of coconuts. Yes, yes, yes we are. Well, yes. I mean, you have to. Later on, we might be drinking other things out of coconuts as well. <laughs> we have to hydrate first. Yes, this we is have a, to hydrate first. a place of proper hydration. <laughs> it's good because it's hot. The yeah, sun is beating down on it us. Is. Now it's, uh, the beach is kind of empty right now. Can we expect more people to join us as the as the recording goes on? I feel a little bit like that's you asking me if you could, if I have like multiple personality. And you're like, <laughs> who else is at the beach with us? I'll, oh no, I'm just asking if there will be screaming children around oh no that is not part of the happy place beach (laughs) Karina what were you saying well I was saying I can always bring out another personality if we feel like we've run out (laughs) no the beach is a quiet and calm place it's the kind of place where you can like read a whole book in one day oh yeah I love that it's that that kind of beach you like go into the water to cool off you come back to dry out you know sort of Mm -hmm. back and forth it's amazing Well, I bet we all have a recommendation for what book people might want to read on this beach. It is the book that you wrote that you just put out last month. Uh, it's called The Possibility of Life. Uh, Jamie, how how was your how was it? How how was your experience writing this book and bringing it to life? I mean, it was it was great. You know, Moya, I don't know if you totally realize this. You were the first person I interviewed for this book. Do you remember I that? Was the first, yeah. I do remember. I didn't realize that was, was the first. That was in November 2019. Yeah, um, it was a long time ago. Yeah, and sadly, that section of the book didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> but That's okay. Um, there, you know, there was a lot of changes and a lot of process. So I've been working on this book since, I mean, the first interview was in 2019, but for mm-hmm. longer than that, it just feels like a huge culmination in a lot of ways. Um, and it was, yeah, it's like always been my dream to write a book. And like, since, you know, I'm not a ballerina, I'm not the mm-hmm. president, but I wrote a book and like five-year-old <laughs> Jamie is thrilled. Oh, I well, love five-year-old that. Five-year-old Jamie should be thrilled. Yeah. I'm proud. You wrote a, you wrote a whole freaking book, dude. I know. <laughs> um, 
You talked about how that one section didn't make it in the book and how it changed so much. Can you tell us a bit more about um, how the book changed from proposal to publication? Yeah, um, the main, like the big picture structure didn't change at all. I always, like the idea for the book came to me with this structure where there are six Mm -hmm. chapters and each one is (laughs) really long and covers... (laughs) one big category of questions we can ask and need to ask in order to imagine what life is like beyond Earth. So it starts with the origins because we need to, if we're going to look for life on other worlds, we have to think about how life arises in general. Then there's a chapter on planets. That's where Moya used to be because I used to mention how there's like a habitable zone in the galaxy, not just in a Mm. star's orbit. But I think that got a little too in the weeds and a little too far from the act. Cause I was just like, let me write a whole chapter about exoplanets. And they were like, how about you keep this connected to the actual themes of your book? And I was like, fine, <laughs> if I must. Um, Rude, but okay. <laughs> I know, whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's a chapter on evolutionary biology and what makes a person, a person and technology mm-hmm. and making contact. So I always knew that those were the categories, that those were the big chapters. I didn't realize until like the whole second draft of the book that that was very influenced by the Drake equation, that way of Ooh. thinking of like, these are the things we need to think about because that that's what the Drake equation is. Like it, I learned mm-hmm. that it wasn't, it's not an equation that's meant to be solved. It was an agenda setting exercise at an early setting meeting. Like Frank Drake wrote this on the board and was like, okay, so these are the things we need to talk about. Um, and I, at some point had internalized that and that became like the structure of my book. Love um, that. It wormed its way into yeah, your brain so yeah. effectively that you didn't even realize it was the inspiration. Yeah. I was yeah. just like, oh, what? It's like if I like am not a musician, but for a little while when I was growing up, we had a piano and I would sort of noodle on it and try to write songs. And anytime I thought I wrote a song, I would realize that it was an existing melody that oh, I, you know, of course, had thought I had. I'd film myself doing mm-hmm. the same stuff and then watch it back mm-hmm. and be like, what was that? <laughs> that yes, was exactly. So, um, but then like what would go in each chapter was wide open and the book yeah. includes science and a lot of sci-fi. And so I had to figure out what books and movies and stories I wanted to use. I had to find ones to use, you know, it's like, okay, I got to find some fiction set on a planet with that's like tidally locked. It's like, okay, I got to go see what those mm-hmm. are. And so there was, there was a lot of shuffling there. I knew I wanted to write about language, but I didn't know where that would go. That ended up going in the chapter about making contact because it's about communication, but so sort of, you know, things like that, you know, what are all the different ways to ask and explore these questions. That's what I was developing over the course of writing. Yeah, we've had, we brought up the Drake equation. We did an episode on SETI and talked about the Drake equation here. So I think our listeners should or might know what it is, but for, in case they don't, I yeah. can summarize and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's this equation with many parts that includes all the things we would need for life. To exist, Sort of. So, and this is actually part of what's tricky about the Drake equation because it's written out as an equation. So you want to be able to solve for something, but it's a little unclear, like whether you're actually meant to. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of estimating the number of civilizations that are in the galaxy at the moment from whom we could receive a signal. Mm-hmm. So it's not 
um, how many there have ever been. It's not how many, pl- like it's, it's about like, is SETI a practical endeavor? Is anyone out there? And so then you have all of, not all of the variables, but a series of variables that Frank Drake chose as most important for knowing that. And some of those variables are things that even in 1960 we knew, like the rate of star formation. Some of them they didn't know then, but we have a decent idea of now, like how many planets each star has on average. We now know mm-hmm. it's some right? That like planets are common. They're not super rare. Some that's mathematically specific. That's rigorous. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just need to start saying like, well, to a first approximation and then it sounds, <laughs> then it sounds serious. Um, and then there are variables that we will probably never know, like what fraction of habitable planets develop life. Mm-hmm. Like we can't do a survey to figure that out. And so it's not an equation that's meant to be solved. Yeah, It's Frank Drake's way of saying, look, if we want to talk about whether SETI is a worthwhile project, let's do some estimates and see like what the constraints are. Like, you know, how common does life have to be in order for there to be, I don't know, 50 transmitting civilizations right now? It's it's a, a thought experiment, basically. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you touch on this. I mean, I know you touch on this even in the introduction of the book, but it, I was telling this to Moya that it feels like a kind of a similar thesis to Pale Blue Pod of this is the universe can be overwhelming and scary. And then when you're given information about it, it becomes way less so and yeah I wanted to hear more about that especially because that's what we think our listeners are dealing with too and I know I felt yeah I mean I think I think part of what you might be gesturing at is that I opened the book talking about the fact that when I was a little kid I was scared of the night sky yeah I it, it was like an extension of being scared of the dark but I was very spooked by the dark the vastness the big openness of it And I think what changed was two things. It was learning about astronomy and understanding some of what was out there. Like now, knowing that any star I look at, odds are it has at least one planet. That's awesome. And that makes it feel less scary because it's familiar. It's like, I know what a planet Mm -hmm. is. I know what it's like to be on a planet that, you know, I can sort of project that out. But then it was also getting into sci-fi and getting into sci-fi that was sort of hopeful and loving and where space was not a dangerous place. It was basically like Star Trek, the next generation and a wrinkle in time that makes space just nicer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I and I'm sure part of it was also outgrowing this this baby fear, but um it definitely like space became a place where things I love happen. Oh, I love that. That's great. And knowing more about something makes it less scary. I think yeah. that's a that's a kind of blanket statement that is safe to make. So I'm I'm glad you got to learn more about astronomy through through school and through people around you teaching it, but also implicitly through science fiction mm-hmm. and and I I would love to have a conversation with you about this because I don't think there are many people I can talk to about this but um, do you do you feel like there's any sort of responsibility in science fiction to implicitly teach people or to be more responsible about what they show I don't um, okay I think the relationship between science and science fiction is that sci-fi takes what's known in science and extrapolates, you know, takes it a few steps farther, a lot of steps farther. But that's the difference between sci-fi and fantasy, right? That like fantasy Mm -hmm. is just like off to the races with its own logic set. But sci-fi is using real rules and logic 
from known science and um, and taking it there. But I don't think that there's a responsibility to be plausible um, because it's not an educational project and it's not presenting itself as fact and it's not presenting itself as educational. Like, so with my background as a nonfiction writer, like I have my master's in creative nonfiction, we would talk a lot about the contract with the reader. What is the mm-hmm. reader's expectation? And so like if in a work of nonfiction, you um, recreate dialogue from memory or you make composite characters, that's okay. You just have to like have an author's note at the beginning that is like, I've combined some characters or I've changed names to protect people's identity or I've like done this to the best of my memory. In sci-fi, we know it's fiction. So we're not expecting it to be, everyone is, on the same page about what the rules are, that it's fiction inspired by science. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I do remember times where, especially as a kid, I was not clear on the contract. Weirdly, the example I remember most vividly, it's not sci-fi, but I read the Celestine Prophecy when I was a kid and didn't realize it was fiction. So the Celestine Prophecy is this book about like spiritual enlightenment. Oh. It's this, my, my mom was in a sort of new agey phase. This was, I think this was like a big book in the early nineties where it like Mm -hmm. tells the story about how through this, like, you know, spiritual awareness, these people sort of like transcend and attain some sort of enlightenment. And it's set in the real world. And I read it and didn't realize that it was fiction. And so I thought that you could like, Mm -hmm. you know, connect with whatever and eventually like leave your mortal form. Um, I like literally thought it was nonfiction. That's a real War of the Worlds situation. Yeah, then. yeah. I mean, there were many books I read as a kid where I wanted it to be nonfiction. Yes. I was like, I'll do anything to live in this world. Like what? Well, this is insane, but like The Borrowers, I was like, I want to be teeny tiny. I want to know what it's like to be teeny tiny and like living in a matchbox as a bed. (laughs) Just to try it, not forever. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, and that's also very much like a kid thing of just your imagination is so huge and so hungry Mm -hmm. that it's just like, I'll build a whole fantasy out of this. Thank you. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, I, I think that like fiction, the question of fiction's moral responsibility in general is so fraught because like yeah. we get into a lot of tricky territory in fiction in general, talking about like, does depicting something or showing a character believing something constitute endorsing it? You know, people get into really mm-hmm. tricky territory where it's, you know. So yeah, I yeah. think that there are different Like some science fiction wants to be plausible and rooted in real science and some is set 50,000 years in the future, you know, so it's just it's it's a really big genre with lots of different goals and intentions, I think. Yeah, I I love that you said intentions. That's how I start all of my world building exercises. Um, And sometimes it is not your intention to build a hard science based uh, sci-fi world. And that's totally fine. More, sometimes it's more speculative than others. So yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there's a responsibility there on the part of fiction writers. But do you feel like you would have gotten that same familiarity with space, with something like Futurama that is like obviously absurd than you did with Star Trek, which at least has, like, it feels like it could be real based on what we know about science today. I wonder if that's a tone more than a content thing, though, because like some Star Trek is meant to be plausible, but there's a lot there's space whales. There's (laughs) all sorts of of just like 
totally not rooted in anything. There's the backwards evolution episode where that one is clearly trying to use science, but is doing it in a way where it's like, I don't like you can't de-evolve me into a spider, even though we share a common ancestor. You can't de-evolve me into a direct ancestor. Like, that's just not how Mm. it works. Um, Mm. So I think they actually sometimes got into more dangerous territory when they got closer to realistic stuff. Um, But I think that, like, the difference there is that Star Trek is taking itself seriously and it's presenting, it's not, like, making fun of anything. Like, you know, it's just saying, like, Here's an imaginary version of the future. And its impulses and intentions are very sincere. Maybe that's what it is. It's about sincerity. Yeah. You know, like Star Trek is just like, look, if you can vanquish war and poverty on Earth, you get to go explore the cosmos. Mm hmm. It's like really just socialist propaganda is the other thing yeah. about Star Trek. <laughs> Which I don't hate. It's like, mm. <laughs> no. It's like, mm, doesn't this world look nice? Would you Might like to nice. know how? Yeah. Abolish money. Um, <laughs> but then there's like an episode where like Beverly's dead grandmother is in a candle and is like very horny. I, I haven't seen that <laughs> one, but people have been telling me I need to watch it again. So, So I think that like the reason that Star Trek was what inspired me and like triggered this for me is partly just it's what I happened to be exposed to. It's what was airing on network TV when I was eight years old. It's what my dad one day was like, hey, girls, let's watch this because he had watched the original series. But it is also what I connected with, I think, because of its like ethos. It's sincere. It's gentle. It's loving. It's hopeful. You know, I was not into scary stuff. There's not a lot of scary stuff on Next Generation. It's very slowly paced. No one wants to fight. They only fight if they have to, you know, and and like everyone just wants to do good. It's very idealistic. I like that. What's up? It's Moya, and this is our episode's mid-break. Jamie went to check on that dog you've been hearing barking in the background, so we figured now is a great time to share some messages with you. First and foremost, we want to shout out our patrons from patreon.com slash palebluepod, and we especially want to thank our sun-like stars. So thank you, Sharn Llewellyn, thank you, Finn, and thank you, Peyton. Thank you for your gravity and your manageable amount of radiation. Wherever you are in the universe right now, we hope you're having a great day. You can uh, support us, you can hear your name on the pod, and you can get access to our research notes for every single episode by supporting us on Patreon for just about $1 per episode. $5 a month is the, the minimum price of tier. You can find our patron star chart, you can find our Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or go right to the source. Go to patreon.com slash palebluepod. And if you can't support us financially, that is totally fine. We still love you, and so does the universe. But another great way to help us, the show, is to share it with your friends. Get your friends to listen to as many episodes as possible, because that will really help our show grow. Now I want to recommend a great way to learn about math and science online. It's no pressure. It is just fun. And it is called Brilliant.org. They are the best way to learn math and science interactively online. That is the keyword. 
Brilliant has thousands of lessons in math, science, data analysis, computer science, logic, whatever, and they're adding new ones each month. You can enjoy their fun storytelling and their guided problem solving and, of course, making lots of mistakes because that is an integral part of the learning process. On Brilliant, it's going to be your natural curiosity that drives you, not the threat of a test or any sort of assessment. Also, Brilliant doesn't just teach you facts and formulas. They're going to develop your intuition for these subjects through interactive gameplay. You'll get a deeper understanding of things like electricity and magnetism and special relativity that we talk about here on the pod, but you can branch out. You get to choose your courses. So take a class on algebra. Take a class on pseudocoding for computer languages. Take a class on foundational logic. Whatever you learn on Brilliant, you're going to have a fun time doing it. So go to brilliant.org slash palebluepod to get a 30-day free trial, and the first 200 people who do that will get 20% off their annual subscription. Again, that's brilliant.org slash palebluepod. Uh, Learn and have fun doing it. All right, now I have a couple of podcast recs for you. The first is called Tiny Matters from the American Chemical Society, so it is smart and legitimate. (laughs) Tiny Matters is a science podcast about things small in size, from neurotransmitters to microscopic organisms to ancient genes. Uh, But all of these small things have a big impact on our world today, both good and bad. Tiny Matters is hosted by former scientists turned science communicators Sam Jones and Deboki Chakravarti. They interview scientists each week, tracking down answers to questions like, how does our brain form memories? And is there a limit to how small we can make computers? Last year, they had an episode called If the Milky Way Could Talk, where they interviewed me about my book, The Milky Way, uh, about my process and things that I wrote in the book. So you can start there if you want to hear a familiar voice. Sam and Deboki know that science doesn't just operate in a vacuum. That's one of my favorite things about this podcast, because really, it is more than just what we're doing in labs and at our computers. So every episode of Tiny Matters is packed with history and real societal impact. There's a new episode of Tiny Matters every other Wednesday. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, whatever. Just search Tiny Matters in your favorite podcast app, and uh, you won't be disappointed. All right, finally, I am here to recommend another podcast from the Multitude Collective, and it is called Spirits. This is actually one of my personal favorites. It's one of maybe four podcasts that I listen to every week, and it is a boozy dive into mythology and folklore. I absolutely love it. Every week, two childhood best friends, Julia and Amanda, get together, they pour a drink, and they talk about a different aspect of folklore and mythology. That's everything from the mythological origins of major franchises like Lord of the Rings, to modern urban legends sent in by listeners, to like a roundup of werewolf stories from around the world. The range of these episode topics is so broad, and I have learned so much from spirits. Corinne and I have both been guests on Spirits, so there are plenty of places for you to start if you want to hear our voices first. But really, there are more than 300 episodes. Amanda and Julia have been doing this for over seven years. Dive in at spiritspodcast.com or search for Spirits wherever you download your podcasts. New episodes come out every Wednesday, and they are always a treat. Again, that is spiritspodcast.com or search for Spirits wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to this episode. And you know what? If you hear a barking dog in the background, just consider yourself lucky because dogs are truly a treat to humankind. 
I would like to know a bit more about the research you did for the book. What surprised you most in in your research? Do you mean in terms of like scientific facts that I encountered? I I was being um, maybe sneakily vague. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. Yes. In science facts that you answered and then. I don't know, maybe a surprising part of the writing when you were trying to synthesize all of the knowledge that you had found. I want to hear about process, too. There were two things that surprised me in the writing process. One was early on when I was writing the first chapter that was part of the book proposal, you know, before I had even, like, sold the book to a publisher. And it was actually chapter three was my sample chapter, the one on animals. Mm. Um, It came out much more sciencey than I... Well, I started with chapter three because this whole project, one of its origins was in an essay series that I wrote in, like, 2017 or 2018. Um, A friend was commissioning culture essays for Medium, and she was like, do you have an idea for an essay series about culture? And I was like, what about aliens through a cultural lens? Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'd been wanting to write about this for a while. I'd written about it a little in grad school, but hadn't figured out like the right way to do it and she said yes and so the third essay in that series was looking at sci-fi aliens in the context of science and talking to some astronomers like about different sci-fi aliens and sort of and that was when I just like wanted to keep writing and keep writing and that's when I was like oh this could be a book and putting sci-fi and science together is the way I want to do it so I had the beginning of that and I just expanded and adapted that for the sample chapter. So that's why I started with the animals chapter. And it was way more sciencey than I expected. I think I went into it thinking it would be like maybe 60, 40 sci-fi and science. And it's at least the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like more a science book than not. And it took me a while to figure out the relationship between the science and the sci-fi, which is basically the sci-fi serves our understanding of the science. It's examples, it raises questions, it shows different possibilities. So that was the first surprise. It just, as I was writing, it came out sort of mm. more serious and more sciencey than I expected. You're a science writer. I, I don't know. think that should have... <laughs> That's but like, how we I met. I know, I know. But like, I haven't ever been exclusively a science mm. writer. Um, like, I reviewed romance novels for a while, and I've been a culture writer, and I write personal essays. It's never been the complete focus of my career, at least until I wrote the book or was working on the book. So it was sort of a discovery process. And that was that was interesting that the book sort of showed me how it wanted to be written. The other big surprise, and this is like what the whole end of the book is about, is that writing this book sort of made me stop caring if there are aliens or not. Ooh, tell me more. (laughs) So, sorry, my dog is barking. Um, Give me one second. Yeah, yeah. He's on the beach. There's a seagull. There's a seagull, yeah. Hey, hey. Can't stop a dog from barking. How loud is this? Is it picking up a lot? It's picking up, but, I mean, it's it's life. We're going to hear your, like... Yeah, because he, like I said, he just gets kind of... um, worked up as we approach the end of the day. Same. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Um, The other thing that really surprised me was that over the course of writing this book, which is all about all that's wrapped up in the question of whether there's life on other worlds, I stopped caring. (laughs) Like by the end of it, I just don't care that much. And I write about this in the book. What happened was, um, Well, first, when I was writing the chapter on planets, 
one of the mm-hmm. researchers I talked to was Abel Mendez, who is um, he, he was trained as an astrophysicist. That's the word, um, and got into astrobiology and maintains like the catalog of habitable exoplanets. And I was asking him like whether he thinks there's life on other worlds, what he hopes, and he was like, I don't really care. I was like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, the more I learn in order to learn about life on other worlds, I have to learn a lot about life on Earth. And life on Earth is so fantastic that I just don't care. And I was like, "Okay, buddy, sure, whatever. Um, Not, you know, I was just like, that's great and ridiculous and not how I feel. And then the next chapter that I worked on, because I was going backwards, was the chapter on the origin of life. And this was the chapter that I knew the least about going into writing the book because like I had Mm. written about exoplanets and astrobiology on and off for a while and I had taken one class at Columbia while I was there in grad school (laughs) so I was like Mm -hmm. I have you know a college juniors foundation on this Um, but the origin of life there was so much to learn about you know biochemistry and cellular mechanics and just all of this fascinating stuff and I just loved it Um, It was so interesting. And there's so much going on just in a cell, like the molecules and the the ways that like cells make energy. It's just and then the, the parts of this that are common among all life on Earth, that we all have these little molecular factories or among all eukaryotes, you know, and then I would just like I was also learning about, you know, dolphin intelligence and how bats experience the world and just all of these completely mind-blowing wild things from animals that are not exotic like mm-hmm. yeah dolphins are in the tropics but like i'm familiar with dolphins a bat they're they're mammals we're closely related and there was just so much strangeness and wonder that i I mean, I found myself really going on the same journey that Abel did also, where I was like, oh, life on Earth is so wild and strange and amazing. There's enough to fascinate me here. Yeah, that that is true. There's a there's a lot to love here. Um, But if we had an announcement tomorrow that people found aliens like you would care you would care oh, yeah. I'd be thrilled <laughs> I would be thrilled I would care you're just like I mean, focused on other questions because yeah, you think and there sh- are there are more interesting questions and more immediately answerable it's like, questions it's like I don't need it I don't need to know the answer about life beyond earth in order to feel meaning or to feel wonder like that used mm-hmm. to be the ultimate source of wonder to me and it's yeah. not anymore I think that's that's what it is yeah I, I know what you mean that. by that I think especially as a kid, you're like, when you're presented with the idea of like, there could be aliens or there could be something else out there. It's like, whoa, that why are, why is that not the only thing we're thinking of? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just like, and I'm sure part of it is also that I worked on this book for years and years and probably got a lot of stuff out of my system. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm like ready to think yeah. about other things. But um, yeah, it's just, it's a, a topic that had always fascinated and obsessed me. And it's just not the core of things anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, when you were talking about the research you did for the origins chapter and how it's what you knew the least going into it, that's how I feel about the very small, Mm -hmm. uh, like the small scales, the, the nano stuff that happens in our bodies like that, that makes me feel the way that I imagine people might feel about space. Um, yeah. It's just so unfamiliar to me and I don't understand how it works. Um, and so I, I 
really appreciated the origins chapter and it felt it's it looked like you brought a lot of that stuff back in the in the contact chapter too when you're talking about language and, and mitochondria and stuff like that yeah Hence yeah Kenya. for sure yeah, yeah. It was it was evident as a writer. I like to when I'm reading, I like to try and figure out what decision led to this being phrased in this way in this mm-hmm. place. And uh, it felt like you just really liked talking about that content. Yeah. Yeah. That was like very that was like the most exciting discovery for me in the book, I think. Uh, I, I had another question yeah. reading your book when you were talking about the exoplanets and you went through the different methods for finding them. We did a whole episode on the different exoplanet detection methods. I'm wondering if you have a favorite. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I was so worried that it was going to be like something I got wrong. Um, (laughs) This is a gotcha episode. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, my God. (laughs) I would never. I know. I know. And I already, like, I have found, I haven't found any intense scientific mistakes, but, like, I found typos and things like that. So, I mean, I'm going to say transit because it's the one I understand the best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have such a great grasp about, because I know, le- like, I can talk about the transit method just sort of off the top of my head. The other two, I have to sit and think, like, which one is this kind of wobble? And I'm do- I'm gesturing, which no one can see, but it's like one of them wobbles <laughs> where you're looking top down and one of them wobbles where you're looking edge on. And... I don't even know if I should say wobbles. Like I had an astronomer read that chapter just to check for, like I had a fact checker, but I wanted to have a subject matter expert read and just be like, are there any red flags here? Am I like embarrassing myself? And he Mm -hmm. took issue with me saying wobble because it's not really technically accurate. That's Um, what everyone says. If you use something different, people wouldn't be able to connect it to the language that everyone else uses for the same concept. It's also very like physically evocative. Yeah. I don't know if it's because when eh. something wobbles, it's more like the axis is processing, you know, where like the bottom mm-hmm. stays in place and the top wobbles, whereas the whole axis is moving, you know, like it's about where the center of gravity is. I think this reader also, mm-hmm. I have a line where I say, um, stars burn and he was like stars don't burn they do fusion and I had to think and I had to say I recognize that and I'm going to say that stars burn and it is now my fault if anyone gets angry about Mm -hmm. it so he was like very very rigorous and very precise Mm. and I had to make those decisions where I was like am I writing this this is not like a an NSF report. This is a piece of literature and I have to take responsibility for the kind of like very, very small stretches of poetic license. But that was two of them. You have to in science writing. Yeah. But, but then I, I think, I mean, a place where I think we actually get into trouble with that in SETI talking about listening for radio signals, because we think of listening and we think of radio as sound waves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, being really precise about the fact that radio is just a a chunk of the electromagnetic spectrum because like obviously sound waves wouldn't go through the vacuum but it's obvious to us right but then you get you get things like the opening scene or one of the opening moments of contact where Jodie Foster and I can see Moya cringing but where Jodie Foster is listening on headphones to what is a sonicalization of what the telescopes are receiving, but Mm -hmm. it's very, in the public consciousness, very messy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that exact scene when you started talking about this. Yeah. Uh, Because, but I mean, I think that 
creates opportunities for good science communication and education. Um, so I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. And Contact gets a lot of other stuff right. Yeah. We should watch right. Contact. Someone did write in and asked us to watch it. So maybe we put it on the list. Oh, my. It's <laughs> so good. And it's like it's so, so interesting and so valuable. And, is de- and it is like, I, I believe that it is Carl Sagan saying, here's how it could go. Mm-hmm. That he really is saying, like, mm-hmm. I think these are the political forces. These are the social forces. This is the pushback. And that's a really valuable artifact, like, culturally. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there are so many scientists, especially women, who were inspired into the field because of that movie or the book, but more the movie. So, yeah, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. but she is sitting there with headphones on and it's not inaccurate. No one's saying that she's listening to the signal, but it's very confusing to watch. <laughs> yeah. For people who, who aren't in the know, um, we were talking about these moments of your creative license where you uh, had to reckon with the the difference between being clear and being precise scientifically. Are there moments in this book, lines that you have written that you are absolutely in love with, uh, that you wish more people were paying attention to? Because <laughs> I know I have those for my I book. I mean, so you're just like my own um, word choice? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> if you just want, want to tell us what they are and, and why you love them so much. Well, let me see. I mean, one that like weirdly has stuck in my own head is when I'm talking about language, trying to figure out what makes language different from communication in general and mm-hmm. whether that would be common among communication systems among from other intelligent aliens. I talk about like the idea of discrete infinity that with a finite amount of words we are able to create infinite ideas. And I I call our combinations of words and phrases that we're just like slapping together and, you know, continuing to, to build out and build out. I call them Frankenstein McMansions. Yes. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> That's a good one. That's the only one that like comes to mind. I mean, I am happy with the writing. I've, I felt that I was able to like, as with Frankenstein McMansions, like be free, be mm. silly and playful with my language, as well as like very sentimental and emotional. But that's just the one bit of language where I'm just like, where'd that come from? What the heck? Yeah. You know, but that's so much fun about writing, being able to surprise yourself. And then I had to go, I got worried because it like came as such a f- like phrase. It just like, you know, plopped into my head where I had to search all of my notes and research and make sure that I hadn't stolen that phrase from someone else but I, I didn't. Oh, yeah. I've had those moments in writing, too, where I'm like, did I come up with this? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. How many notes, how many interviews did you do for this book? Like, how, what um, was your research process like? I did a lot of interviews. I was I was thinking I could open my Scrivener file and see, but that will absolutely crash the Zoom. So I'm not going <laughs> to do that. Oh, wow. So it's, it, it, that's at least some... It's a lot, it's a yeah. Lot. Like, I have... I I used Scrivener, which is like a sort of writing and research organization and word processing software all in one. That file is so crammed that I will often get like the spinning beach ball for a couple minutes when I'm working in it. The beach ball of death. It it has never crashed because Scrivener is wonderful. But um, I haven't counted, but I must have done probably over 50 interviews. So the first one was you, Moya, in November of 2019. The last ones were in... 
I don't remember if they were in 2021 or 22, but it was while I was fact checking. My amazing mm. fact checker was like, I happen to know a lot about dolphin st- dolphin research, <laughs> and I think you're missing you're missing a perspective. Um, mm. And I, she was like, I hear a couple hear a couple of people. I was like, Oh my god, thank you. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was amazing. It was so lucky. Was she from the publisher? Because I no. one of the issues I had is that I did not have a fact checker. I had to go find individual people to read each chapter because. They also told me I could not send the book in entirety to anyone. Oh, gosh. That's so. bullshit. Um, that's <laughs> not, they shouldn't have told you that. Um, because, okay. yeah, it's, so a lot of people don't know this, and this is like a uh, pet, not even a pet peeve. This is like a cause of mine, where readers assume that nonfiction books are fact-checked. Yes. That they are mm-hmm. rigorous, that they have been checked. They are not. There is, yes. as far as I know, one general audience publishing imprint that builds in fact-checking. It's ridiculous because your publisher pays to copy edit, your publisher pays to proofread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your publisher mm-hmm. does not pay to fact-check your book. It yes. is not built into the editorial process. If you want to do it, the writer has to pay for it themselves. Right. I was really mm-hmm. lucky that I had a grant that covered part of that. But yeah, mm-hmm. I had to build this into the schedule and find a fact checker myself and pay her myself. Yeah. Um, wow. Moya, your publisher definitely should have let you <laughs> okay. send the whole manuscript to a fact checker if you wanted. Also, because mm-hmm. like writers can send their I could have like I sent my manuscript to two friends who are editors when I wanted extra feedback. So like like if you had a writing group or like mm-hmm. critique partners, you could send them a whole manuscript. Oh, I'll I'll look back at the contract for book number two, um, and yeah. I, part of the reason I'm asking about your research process is because I'm going to have to do research for book number two, which I did not yeah. have to do for book number one, and so I'm looking for tips and tricks. Have you used Scrivener? No, not yet. When we're not podcasting, we should talk about Scrivener because it is okay. amazing for organizing and like accessing and writing from your research. I am an evangelist. Okay, great. Yeah, you sound passionate about it. I'll give it a try. <laughs> um, I just have one question left. Um, this is my, my question, Jamie, uh, feel free to get creative with this, mm. is, um, you know, as a, a consumer of science fiction, if you could take any fiction story and set it in any fictional world, what I know, what Frankenstein McMansion would you make? Yeah, okay, (laughs) it's not exactly one fictional story, but what I desperately want in the world is a romance series that is essentially set on the Next Generation Enterprise. So, (laughs) for anyone who's not a big romance reader, romance novels often come in series of three, five, six, seven, whatever novels, where it's all the characters know each other. It's sort of like a little universe. This could be contemporary, historical, paranormal, whatever, where like you'll have the main characters in the first book, and then the sister of the hero from the first book is looking for love in the second book. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it can be a, a friend group a family in Bridgerton you know it's all the siblings yes that sort of thing there is way less sci-fi romance than I want there to be um there is some but I think and we see this in next generation there are romances we have Troy and Riker and then Mm -hmm. um by the end uh the captain and Beverly and Jordy has his weird fling with the hologram lady the holodeck (laughs) lady so like it is really ripe for that and I think the like sort of monster of the week adventure structure of next generation 
if you combine that with the romance, sometimes the romances can be between crew members. Sometimes it's a crew member and an alien, a crew member and an adversary. Yeah. You know, I just think Ooh. the episodic nature of like a Star Trek show and the sort of like forced proximity of living on a ship that's going around doing its stuff. I just if I could write fiction, if my brain could do it, I would not be talking about this. I would be writing it. <laughs> I just think it would be so much fun. Like, imagine if Next Generation was also romance. Yeah, I do think that yeah. would be really fun. I, I want this so badly. There's a new reality show. There's a new reality show called Stars on Mars. Yes. And, <laughs> yes. And Moya, I was thinking we should watch this. And if we wanted to do bonus episodes on the Patreon, maybe we recap you, yes, the show. Absolutely. Um, oh, I'm so down. But it is kind of as close to that as we have right now, where it's like, I imagine there's going to be some kind of interpersonal romance or drama even set in this like habitat. But I, it's like I agree Big Brother you. while training to go to Mars. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Starring one of wow. the Vanderpump Rules guys. And then like Tanache. I, <laughs> I know. Think. And then Tanache, who I'm like, I hope she wins. <laughs> I know. This is perfect for us. Girls. Yes. I know. We need to I watch know. this show. <laughs> um, anyway, I completely agree. And I would watch that show. And if the writers ever go mm -hmm. off their right. deal then let's mm -hmm. let's get it or like it could be books it could be a tv show yes. i don't know like it could be both i just next generation meets bridgerton yeah. basically i, I think love, you're i, I think that. the world does need that you're, you've found yeah. the gap yeah amazing that you had that right away uh, i've so you've clearly been thinking about this for a while <laughs> i've been thinking about this for years i talk about it pretty often mm -hmm. um I have a friend who's an agent who like represents romance and I was like and she loves next generation. I was like, yeah. Could you please, please have someone write this. You have to start commissioning yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Just a little a little nudge in the right direction. The I just next want to grant read it. you set aside just a little right. bit. You get chapter by chapter. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was my answer. I love it. That's that's a great answer. I think that's a great way to wrap up the episode. Uh, before we all go, can you please tell us how to find you and your work online, Jamie? Yes, my website is jamiegreen.net, J-A-I-M-E, um, because my parents wanted to make life just a little more difficult. Um, information about the book and links to buy the book are at jamiegreen.net slash book, or you can get it wherever the heck you like to get books. And you can find links to my social media on the website, too. You can also find them in this episode's description. We will absolutely include a link to the book um, to, a, a, you know, like an indie bookstore site. And uh, I read it and I really enjoyed it. I am going to definitely be using it in my world building class. Uh, I'm teaching my first class tonight and I'm going to highly recommend that people ah. uh, read it because, uh, again, I have multicolored tabs. They are color coded. And one of these colors is specifically for the moments where your book got me really thinking about world building stuff. So thank you for that. And oh, I'm so happy about that. Yeah. Everyone look into The Possibility of Life by Jamie Green. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. I'm so glad we had you. And for our listeners out there, remember wherever you are, a beach in Costa Rica or land mm -hmm. or a spaceship on the next generation, remember you are space. Blue 
Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at PaleBluePod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.